You're listening to sermon audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. That's where we're going to be this morning, Romans 7, 13 and 14. We're, continu- we're continuing our series through the book of Romans this morning, which brings us to this passage. So um, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in Jesus. I pray that that would be our one and only hope uh, as we gather as your people this morning, that we would remember that um, and that that would be the centerpiece of our time of worship as a church family this morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for the gift of mothers and recognize you as the giver of all good gifts. And so we give glory and honor and praise to you for the gift of mothers on Mother's Day. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 13, we're just going to go through Romans 7, verses 13 and 14 this morning. Um, So we'll start with verse 13, which says this. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, Paul is once again uh, answering another possible objection here uh, to what he's been teaching kind of throughout this section. And, And this objection is that if all of us, Paul included, are destined for hell apart from Christ for breaking God's law, is that which is good, i.e. God's law, right, somehow responsible for that? That's, that's the possible objection Paul's responding to here. In other words, is it God's law's fault that apart from Christ, we're destined for spiritual death, i.e. hell, for breaking it? That's the possible objection Paul's responding to here. Paul's answer again is, by no means. He's used that answer uh, throughout as he's responded to these objections. Again, meaning absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. Um, sin is to blame for this, <laughs> not God's law. We see this in, in verse 13, the second part. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It was the sinfulness in my heart my sinful nature that took what is good, i.e. God's law, and twisted and misused and abused it and produced all kinds of sinful responses in me. All kinds of covetousness, as Paul says in Romans 7, verse 8. That's to blame for me being destined for hell because of my sin apart from Christ, not God's law. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's laying out here. So to go back to the illustration uh, we we used last time we were in Romans, um, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, a poor craftsman blames his tools, right? Remember when we talked about that? Again, the problem is not with the perfectly holy and righteous and good law of God, but with the sinfulness of the human heart for twisting, misusing, and abusing it. Amen? The problem lies with the poor craftsman and not with the perfectly holy and righteous and good tool that is God's law. The same goes, by the way, for God's law, like a mirror showing us 
the depth of our sin where, and, and where we fall short of it. That, that on our own, we're spiritually dead and destined for hell apart from Christ. That's not the mirror's fault, okay? Um, yeah, that, that, that's not the, the, the mirror's fault. It's just showing us what's true of us. But the mirror's not to blame for that, right? In the same way that it's not the mirror's fault when there's something in our teeth. Amen? Does that make sense? You're not like, oh, this mirror. It's like, no, it's just showing you what's there. That's not the mirror's fault. Like, same idea here. And so, church, as we talked about last time we were in Romans, do we believe that? Or has part of us as poor craftsmen, as sinners, started to blame our tools, namely God's law here? Be that with our own lives or as we observe the lives of others. Again, church, the, the, the problem is not with the perfectly righteous law of God, but with the sinfulness of the human heart for twisting, misusing, and abusing it. So again, let's remember that, that next time we uh, or those who we love smack our thumbs with a hammer, so to speak. Right? Again, it's not the perfect tool's fault. It's us as poor craftsmen, as sinners. Amen? That's where the blame lies. Paul then highlights uh, one of God's sovereign purposes in all of this. And that's that sin's true nature, meaning how gross and twisted sin really is, would be on display. Verse 13, the second part again says, It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Curtis Vaughn and, and Fred Malone in their commentary on the book of Romans summarize this well. They say this, the thought is that sin's perversity, its enormous turpitude, meaning depravity, wickedness, is evident in its turning a good thing, the commandment, in, particularly, in particular, again, I believe the 10th commandment, you shall not covet here that Paul had referenced before, into an instrument of death. Right. So it, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, as, as Paul says, same idea, right? Through its misuse and abuse of a good thing, i.e. the commandment, sin both is and is shown to be that much more grievous. Do you see that? The, the grossness of sin is on display. Now, why would this be one of God's sovereign purposes in all of this? Well, as we've talked about many times as of late, because we've been talking about God's law a lot as of, as of late, the three classic uses of God's law that theologians talk about are that it's a curb, a mirror, and a guide, right? We've talked about this a lot. But one of the three uses of God's, of God's law is that it's a mirror. It, it shows us the depth of our sin, shows us where we fall short of it, shows us our need of salvation and our hopelessness to save ourselves, that we'd look to Christ by faith and be saved. Amen? Right? To use this illustration we've used before, it, it, God's law as a mirror shows us that this spiritual disease of sin, which leads to spiritual death, leads to hell if left untreated, it shows us that we have it. You have that disease. That we look to Christ by faith and be saved. Amen? And that's why one of God's sovereign purposes in the sinfulness in our hearts 
in our sinful natures, twisting and misusing and abusing God's law and producing all kinds of sinful responses in us, resulting in our being destined for hell because of our sins apart from Christ, was to show us just how gross and grievous our sin really is. That we'd see our need for a savior, our hopelessness to save ourselves, look to Christ by faith and be saved. Do you see that? Again, that that we see that this spiritual disease of sin, which leads to spiritual death, leads to hell if left untreated, that we'd see that we have it, that we look to Christ by faith and be saved. Now, going back to what we talked about last week, all the more reason to preach God's law faithfully, faithfully, right? All the more reason to preach God's law faithfully with, with all its sharpness when we preach the gospel. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So don't, to give you a picture, don't dull that blade, so to speak. (laughs) Preach God's law faithfully with all of its sharpness when you preach the gospel. Because that's one of the means that God uses to drive sinners to Christ, that they'd look to him by faith and be saved. Amen? So don't be afraid, to put it bluntly, don't be afraid to cut people with the truth. Don't be afraid to cut people with the truth. Just do so faithfully to God's word, right? And in love, and then leave the results to God. But don't be afraid to cut people with the truth. That's one of the means God uses to, draw, to drive people to Christ that they look to him by faith and be saved. Amen? Verse 14. Paul goes on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. All right, deep breath. Um, <laughs> here we get to the biggest question of this section of Romans 7. Okay? When, when Paul says, I in verses 14 through 24. Is he referring to himself as a regenerate believer or himself when he was still an unregenerate unbeliever? That's the question. I believe he's referring to himself as a regenerate believer. In other words, as a Christian whom God has caused to be born again or he wouldn't believe. I, I believe that's what he's referring to. Himself in the present tense as a Christian, as a regenerate believer. Now, let me give you a few reasons why. I want to give you some evidence for this because that'll help us as we keep going. Um, Here's a few reasons I believe Paul's referring to himself when he says, I, as a regenerate believer here. Number one, phrases like, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being that we see in verse 22 are much too strong to be describing an unregenerate believer. So I'll say that again. Phrases like, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being that we see in verse 22 are much too strong to be describing an unregenerate unbeliever. Unregenerate unregenerate sinners simply do not delight in the law of God in their inner being. Only believers whom God has caused to be born again or they wouldn't believe do that. Amen? Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians 2.14, in fact, says the natural person In other words, the unregenerate sinner does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That doesn't sound like delighting in the law of God in my inner being to me. I don't know about you, but boy, that doesn't sound that way. (laughs) In fact, it sounds like quite the opposite, right? So that's the first reason that just can't be describing your phrases like I delight in the law of God in my inner being just can't be describing unregenerate sinners. Here's the second reason I believe Paul's referring to himself in the present tense uh, when he says I as a regenerate believer here. Secondly, Paul's consistent use of the present tense throughout this passage point to him speaking in the present tense as a regenerate believer here. To quote Curtis Vaughn and Fred Malone, as they quote uh, Cranfield in his commentary in the book of Romans, I know that's, we got a hat within a hat. That's, anyway, to quote, <laughs> to quote them, I think this is helpful. That's why I'm referencing it. Cranfield, uh, they say this. Cranfield, for instance, writes that the use of the present is here sustained too consistently and for too long and, and, and contrasts too strongly with the past tense of verses 7 through 13 to be at all plausibly explained as historical presence meaning the use of the present tense to refer to something that took place in the past. And I think that's right. Paul had just used the past tense all the lead up up to this <laughs> until we get to this section. So here are two options. Either the, the, the consistent over and over again use of the present tense in contrast with the fact that he had just used the past tense, he, it means he's speaking in the present tense intentionally, like he is talking about himself as a regenerate believer, or Paul forgot how to use the past tense that he had just been using <laughs> Between, in verses verse through 13 by the time he got to verses 14 through 24. Which I don't know about you, but that seems pretty implausible. The fact that he just was doing that and then switches present tense seems pretty intentional to me. Um, again, or the, the other explanation here, alternatively, I believe more plausibly, he's using the present tense here because he's speaking about himself in the present. This is on purpose. He's speaking about himself as a regenerate believer. So that's the second reason I believe Paul is speaking about himself in the present tense when he says, I, as a regenerate believer here. Thirdly, an internal struggle like the one described here, like in verse 15, for instance, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. An internal struggle like the one described here with those two verses, for instance, can only take place in a regenerate believer. An internal struggle like that, that that's just not describing an unregenerate unbeliever. As, as Cranfield puts it, a struggle as serious as that which is here described can only take place where the Spirit of God is present and active. I think that's right. Unbelievers are just not that conflicted about their sin, to put it bluntly. That just this internal war Paul's describing, I got to tell you, unbelievers don't feel that way. That that's just not, they're not that conflicted about their sin, even on their best behavior. Amen. Let's just be honest. Amen. Right. That's just not true. So all that to say, I believe Paul is referring to himself as a regenerate believer here. In other words, as a Christian, when he says, I He's referring to himself in the present tense as a Christian whom God has caused to be born again or he wouldn't believe. That's the conclusion to all that evidence. I believe he's speaking about himself as a regenerate believer in this passage. Now, with that said, let's look again at verse 14. (laughs) Okay, let's go back into the passage. Verse 14 again says this. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. We're going to start with the easier part first. Okay, let's take the let's deal with the easier part of this verse first. So, as the Reformation Study Bible puts it, uh, far from repudiating the law, Paul declares that it sets forth the standard to which life governed by the Spirit should conform. So, I, I think that's what Paul is getting at in saying that the law is spiritual. Of uh, but, but I am of the flesh. When Paul says that of himself. Uh, the Reformation Study Bible goes on to say, by contrast, he, meaning Paul, calls himself of the flesh because he cannot fully reach this standard. So kind of putting those two things together, God's law is spiritual or uh, of or from the Holy Spirit. And as the Reformation Study Bible puts it, it sets forth the standard to which life governed by the, the, the Spirit should conform. But Paul, at the time of his writing, and we are of the flesh. In other words, sinners with a sinful nature who, as the Reformation Study Bible puts it, cannot fully reach this standard. That's, I think, what Paul's unpacking here. So again, we know that the perfectly holy and righteous and good law of God is not to blame for our being destined for hell apart from Christ because of our sin. We are. We are to blame, not God's law. Amen? In other words, the sinfulness of the human heart is to blame for twisting, misusing, and abusing God's law. Again, if you've got a, let's go back to this illustration. If you've got a perfect tool and a poor craftsman, who do you think is to blame here? The poor craftsman, right? Exactly. And that, that's Paul's point in laying this comparison out here. That, that we'd see that the problem lies with us and the sinfulness in our hearts and not with the perfectly holy and righteous and good law of God. I think that's exactly what Paul's driving. He wants us to see that. So again, as we, we've talked about a number of times, don't be the poor craftsman who, who blames his tools. The problem lies with us as sinners, as poor craftsmen, and not with the perfectly holy and righteous and good tool that is God's law. Okay, now we got the easier part out of the way. And now we come <laughs> to, to the most difficult part of our passage this morning. Um, let's look at verse 14 again, but this time we'll focus in on the last part of it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am... What was that? Anybody know? That was fascinating. Okay, I've got, I got a soundtrack now. Okay, I'll, I'm going to say this again. <laughs> Um, let's look at verse 14 again. We're going to focus on the, the, the last part of it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Sold under sin is the part we're going to deal with now. <laughs> sold under sin. What, what, what does that mean? Now, we've already established why we think Paul is referring to himself as a regenerate believer here. We've already talked about the evidence for that. Uh, why we, we believe Paul's referring to himself in the present tense as a Christian whom God has caused to be born again, or he wouldn't believe. But now here's the difficulty of that phrase, <laughs> sold under sin, okay? But I thought Christians have been set free from slavery to sin. So what gives? What's going on in this passage? Because how is he, if he's speaking about himself in the present tense as a Christian, how, how is he using this phrase, sold under sin? Do you see that difficulty? Well, let me answer that. 
Yes, in Christ we have been set free. Let me unpack this from the penalty of sin via Christ's sacrificial death in our place, paying the penalty for all of our sins in full, which is counted to us by faith, right? So in Christ, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. In Christ, we've been set free from the power of sin via our new hearts and the Holy Spirit now dwelling within us. We can put to death what is earthly in us and walk in newness of life more and more each day by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Christ, we've been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin in us. In other words, we still have a sinful nature at work within us, even as believers. Amen? Right? And that will continue to be the case this side of eternity. Either until we die or Christ returns, and then we will finally be free from even the presence of sin in us. But until then, again, this side of eternity, we're still sinners with a sinful nature, right? Amen? And I believe this is what Paul has in mind here. Okay, that, that this side of eternity, we're not yet free from the presence of sin in us. We still have a sinful nature at work within us, even as believers, which is how he can use slavery imagery here of himself as a regenerate believer. Because when he wrote this, he was not yet free from the presence of sin in him. He still had a sinful nature at work within him, even as a believer. And the same is true and will continue to be true of us this side of eternity, either until we die or Christ returns, right? Does that make sense? My evidence for why I believe this is what Paul has in mind here is this. This is what the, the whole rest of Romans chapter 7 is about. The internal battle that exists in us as believers because we're not yet free from the presence of sin in us. That's the whole rest of the chapter what he's referring to and how does this is another bit of evidence here how does paul describe that internal battle in him in chapter 7 verse 23 by using the imagery of captivity look at romans 7 i'm going to read verses 21 through 23 and you'll see what i'm talking about so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand for i delight in the law of god in my inner being but i see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he even describes this internal battle as a believer using captivity language, this imagery of captivity. Now, I get it, let me pause, okay? If you're incredibly uncomfortable right now with the notion of captivity, captivity imagery in any way being associated with regenerate believers, I get that. I just want to pause and recognize that. I get it, but let me say a couple things to kind of help navigate that. Number one, I, and I, I, I believe this is true. I think that's because at the very least, as of late, much of the church, the global church at large, has not done a great job of explaining the already not yet of this. I really think that's a big factor here. That yes, 
in Christ, we have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, but we are not yet free from the presence of sin in us and won't be this side of eternity again until either we die or Christ returns. In other words, if you're uneasy right now with that concept, that doesn't mean that this isn't a biblical concept. That may be because no one has ever carefully explained this to you before. Is that fair enough? And so that's the first thing, let me submit to you. I think we just, just the church globally as of late has not done a good job of explaining uh, the already not yet of this that Paul's addressing here in this passage, okay? That's number one. Number two, as a thought exercise, okay, walk with me through this. If you're completely free from sin in every sense, then just go ahead and stop sinning. Stop then. It's a problem. What's the issue? Well, you can't, can you? You can't just stop sinning completely this side of eternity because you're not yet free from the presence of sin in you, right? You still have a sinful nature at work within you, even as a believer. Now, <laughs> what's a word we could use to describe the opposite of freedom? Um, hmm. It's, you know, it's really just on the tip of my tongue of what imagery maybe we get. Oh, yeah, captivity, which is what Paul does here. Do you see that? So is it ever fair to use captivity imagery to describe regenerate believers? Yeah, I think so. We should just do so very carefully, which is what Paul does here as we look at this passage. See that? Amen? Does that make sense? Now, if this side of eternity, we won't ever be completely free from the presence of sin in us, because we still have a sinful nature at work within us, even as believers, then church, until we die or Christ returns, we still have work to do, don't we? Right? So I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. Play to the whistle, church. Play to the whistle. Keep going and keep growing in the faith. Keep putting to death what is earthly in you and walking in newness of life more and more each day by the power of the Holy Spirit until you reach the finish line, until either you die or Christ returns. Don't let off the gas. We've used this picture before too, but again, stay hungry. Stay hungry, church. Don't let off the gas. Keep flipping over logs in your heart and be honest about what you see. And then keep working on what you know you need to work on, right? That area that you don't want me to bring up right now or ask about right now, that one. Keep working on that, right? Keep working on it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't let up until you die or Christ returns. Amen? Keep looking regularly and honestly into the mirror of God's law to help you see what areas you need to keep working on. And lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you see your blind spots too. Hey, help me, help me recognize this. Like, to give you this illustration, like a good sparring partner in, in boxing or in MMA, right? For example, hey, you're dropping your guard when you get tired, right? I noticed your, your, your hands drop when you get tired. Bring that hand up, right? Get that blocking hand up, right? Same idea here. Invite that feedback from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, I want to hear from you. If you notice an area that I need to work on, because I want to keep improving until I reach the finish line. All right, so if you notice something, 
bring it to me. I want to work on it. Amen? Right? And I bet, church, you'll be surprised what you hear when you invite that kind of feedback. Now, give that feedback to one another in love. <laughs> right? Let's get, let's get this right. And again, faithfully to the word. But if we're all doing that for one another, that's how we all grow, right? That's how we all continue to improve and grow in spiritual maturity until we die or Christ returns. That's how the whole team grows, to use a sports illustration, right? We, we point out, hey, you gotta work on this. We gotta work on that throw, right? <laughs> like, it's that idea. That's how a whole team grows or a whole church improves together is honest, constructive criticism. Speaking the truth in love so that we all grow together, so we all help each other with our blind spots, right? Bottom line, until Christ returns, if we're still breathing, we're still working. Amen? Right? If we're still breathing, Christ hasn't returned yet, we've got work to do. So play to the whistle. <laughs> Keep working on it until you die or Christ returns. Now, the good news is that one day our sanctification, our growth in godliness, will be complete. One day our sanctification will be complete and will finally be free from even the presence of sin in us when either we die or Christ returns, right? That's the good news here. One day your sanctification will be complete when either you die or Christ returns. But until then, play to the whistle. <laughs> keep going and keep growing in the faith, keep putting to death what is earthly in you and walking in newness of life more and more each day by the power of the Holy Spirit until you reach that finish line, until either you die or Christ returns. And remember the good news that wherever we fall short of God's law, in Christ we're forgiven, in Christ we're declared righteous, and in Christ we're empowered to change. In Christ we're forgiven via Christ's sacrificial death in our place, paying the penalty for all of our sins in full, which is counted to us by faith. In Christ, we're declared righteous via Christ's perfect life, his perfect obedience to God's law, which is counted to us by faith, right? And in Christ, we're empowered to change, to, to put to death what is earthly in us and walk in newness of life more and more each day by the power of the Holy Spirit until we reach the finish line, until either we die or Christ returns and our sanctification is complete. But until then, let's stay hungry, church. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that until Christ has returned, if we're still breathing, we've still got work to do. So Lord, help us, help us to remember that and help us to live accordingly. Keep putting in the work as far as working on the areas that we know we need to, inviting feedback from our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see where we need to grow, looking to the mirror of your law in your word to see, hey, what do I need to work on? Lord, help us to do these things. Empower us to do these things by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to remember wherever we fall short here that in Christ we're forgiven in Christ, we're declared righteous, and in Christ, we're empowered to change. And so, Lord, help us to remember that good news this morning where we fall short here and to take that with us as we <laughs> seek to play to the whistle as we leave from here together this morning as a church family. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.